Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. If you talk about your love of old speculative fiction or show an interest in the history of the genre, inevitably someone will pop up and say, I don't read those old books because they're all cishat white men. That's not true, and those people should really know better. While authors of the past definitely had to deal with worse sexism and racism and queerphobia and so on, it's wildly inaccurate to say that the past has nothing to offer but dead white men. Women have always been in science fiction, ever since Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. So in this episode of Write Good, former assistant editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Stephen Mazur, returns to talk about women, queer, and bi-POC authors in ye olden times. This is a huge topic, and Stephen did a ton of research, so much research, way more research than I expected you to do. So we're going to break this into two parts, I think. For this part, we'll talk about the field up through the end of the 1950s. So thanks for coming back, and thank you for the exhaustive amount of homework you did for this. I, I am blown away. I did not expect that much. <laughs> thank you. I'm very excited to be here. This is a big privilege. And yes, my, my summer of science fiction research turned into a summer of madness. I went a little overboard. But, but it was fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, it'll be a list of names. You're like, okay, I got approximately 57 pages of notes. And I'm like, oh my God, Jesus Christ. It's a little bit like the the prepping for the Gilgamesh episode. We did a book club bonus episode for Gilgamesh. And the guests put together this outline that was basically a three-hour long lecture about the history of Mesopotamia. And my right outline on. was just the word gay with a question mark after it. <laughs> so, so so this is pretty good. This appears to be a pattern for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed that book club episode. That, that was a fun one. Thank you. I enjoyed yeah. doing that. But uh, why don't we talk a little bit, it, it, based on what you're telling me, it sounds like every generation of sci-fi and fantasy writers, there's a group of women who insist, we're the first women to ever write sci-fi and fantasy and that's not true. Generation after generation of women will say, we're the first women to do this. And that's clearly not true. So why do you think this this idea persists? Why do you think that every new generation of women sci-fi authors seems to believe that no woman has ever done this before? There's a lot of, there are a lot of reasons, but you're right. It keeps popping up. It seems like every 10 or 15 or, or at least 20 years, there's turnover in the field. People forget that women ever existed. They forget the history. Or if they do know that there were some women who were writing, they assume that, oh, they had a, a really hard time. They had to publish under false names. Or if they didn't have to do any of those things, then like, oh, well, they're just the exceptions, right? It's just a few women, but we're really breaking down the doors. I think it just, it's a mixture of honest ignorance and also for for the writers themselves I, I feel like at least nowadays maybe not nowadays from there was a period i feel from about like 2000 and then it really crested in like 2007 2008 and it kept up until about 2015 or 2016 where it was the People really believed the falsehood that there were no women in science fiction or that there were only a few women in science fiction. And now we're really 
breaking down the doors. And uh, that seems to have ebbed. I think we're ever since about 2016, we've actually been in a period where there are more retrospective anthologies coming out. I think it started with The Women of Futures Past, edited by Christine Catherine Rush. That came out in 2016. It's uh, it's 12 stories by women stretching from about somewhere in the 1930s up until probably like the late 80s. And in a a very lengthy and and interesting introductory essay, Rush talks about this, about how she's been in the field since the, I think like the mid 80s. It never seemed to her or anybody or any women of her generation that like there were never any women in science fiction. And if there had been any doors that had to be or any barricades that had to be stormed, they're the ones that did the storming back in the, the late 80s and the early 90s. So what's the big problem? But she was coming up against all these younger women writers who just didn't know that any of that had happened or existed. And so she talks a lot about that and uh, and reasons why. Uh, it's an interesting book. But there have been others recently. Um, the Future is Female, edited by Lisa Yashak. I think that came out in 2018. And I think there, that was older science fiction women writers from like the probably like the 30s through the 50s. I don't have it in front of me and maybe older stories than that. And I think they're doing a, a follow up and there have been others. So I think it's less prevalent in the field, but it's probably still a very popular notion on in the general public and on Twitter that women don't write science fiction or there haven't ever been that many of them. Right. Right. Uh, if you read an old book, it was always written by a cishet white man. That yeah. all, all the books, all of them, all of them were written by cishet white men. Virginia <laughs> Woolf, cishet white man. Yeah. So I, I think in what I um, in what I read, women and, and not just women, but LGBT writers, black writers, other writers of color, minority writers, they they do obviously. At the time, I'm not going to tell anybody that they didn't have a, a, a rougher time of it than, say, your standard straight white man. But it's the picture's more complicated. I think a lot of the discrimination that these minority groups face really is a lot of it comes from us in the present who just assume that they weren't there. Because obviously, you know, the editors. At the time, they published these people. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been published writers. People, groups of people get erased just because people assume that they didn't exist. And, you know, it's easier to assume they're like, oh, yeah, you know, the past was racist. The past was sexist. So there probably weren't any people of color or women writers back then because right. that's how the past was. So it's right. just easier to assume that than it right. would be to have to go out and like learn something how can you find out something exists if you don't even think that it does well what i find interesting is that i i see it kind of from the left and from the right or yeah both <laughs> kind of share that sorry calm down kitty both kind of share that misconception like left-leaning kind of liberal people will be like oh it's not worth reading old stories because it's all cishet white men and then like right-wing kind of chud types will be like i miss the good old days when it was all cishet white men and they're both wrong <laughs> They're both yeah. very, very wrong. Read a book, please. <laughs> yeah. What's that um that meme where it's it's the black arm and the white arm and uh Right, you know, and, and they're shaking hands in the middle. 
Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Because like obviously the the right wing chuds like they don't want there to be anybody but straight white men because you know duh right that's that's what that's what they do. But from the other side, it's they they do it for different reasons, but it 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 almost kind of amounts to the same thing. Yeah, some of it is just not reading old stuff, which which is I can understand that, but. Settle down, Harley. But not reading old stuff and then assuming you know everything, that kind of that that bugs me because there absolutely was there actually absolutely were loads and loads of at least female sci-fi writers and fantasy writers since the very beginning. And part of the reason this topic gets on is important to me. It's it's not just to like dunk on people. It's not just to say, well, actually, but recognizing the past, I think, is pretty important because if we we if we don't recognize them, then there's a risk of them being forgotten. The kinds of writers that we're talking about, the vast majority of writers, they they really fade in popularity once they die. Yeah, which is no inevitable. We're not going to hold on to everything. Yeah, and they're not publishing new work. I think a lot of people, if you think about writers like J.R.R. Tolkien or, or Frank Herbert, they really skew people's perceptions of work staying around for decades and decades and being really popular. I mean, not just because it's, it's great work, it, it is, but they're really the exceptions. And right. in addition, if, if, if you think about it, even though they have been dead for decades, in a way they do keep on publishing new work because of all the posthumous stuff that comes out from the Tolkien estate and has been for decades. And the way that Frank Herbert's son, Brian Herbert and, and Kevin J. Anderson keep writing. Yeah. Dune sequel novels and prequel novels and interstitial novels and more than a dozen of these novels like these books just keep coming out and so they they keep the author's memory alive and uh, it was a lot easier for work to fall out of print decades ago in like the the 30s the 40s the 50s or even the 60s unless magazine editors reprinted old stories in new magazines which they would sometimes do but otherwise, they'd, they'd fade away. This is how H.P. Lovecraft stayed alive in terms of his memory. His friends kept republishing his old work. And that's also how one of the earliest female writers that, that, I, that I researched today, that Frances Stevens, it's a pen name. Uh, her real name was Gertrude Barrows Bennett. Um, that is such an how, old-timey name, Gertrude. I know, right? Oh that's God. how... That's how her memory stayed alive because Mary Nadinger, she was a mystery editor in in the 40s. Uh, I think the name of the magazine that she edited was Famous Fantastic Mysteries. She reprinted like six of Francis Stevens's novels in her magazine over the decade of the 40s. And that helped keep her alive in the in the in the public memory. Right. Um, so in, or, in other words, in, if we want to keep women and diverse authors alive, we got to do it. It's not just going to happen organically. You it, For for J.R.R. Tolkien and Frank Herbert's work to stay alive, there were people working for it and curating it and preserving it. So I really would like to see if there was a little bit more work to curate and preserve and honor work of previous generations of women, previous generations of queer authors, previous generations of diverse authors, not just keep them alive, but maybe try and bring some back into the public consciousness, because a lot have been unjustly forgotten. And one example, not of a sci-fi writer, but of a writer who was sort of brought back from obscurity, 
currently Zora Neale Hurston is quite well known. She's a well-known name, but that that's a really recent phenomenon. After she died, immediately after she died, she was pretty much forgotten. She faded into obscurity. It was just Alice Walker who wrote The Color Purple, this super popular novel. She put the work into bringing Zora Neale Hurston's writing back into the public consciousness. She got her books re-released and reprinted. She even found out where Hurston was buried and got her a proper headstone because she was buried in an unmarked grave. That's how obscure she was when she died. And Walker did this because she's a Black woman writer supporting and paying tribute to a previous generation of important and innovative Black woman writers. And and I, I would love to see more of that energy in speculative fiction for from other from people who want diverse voices because that's something that kind of bugs me when i see a lot of contemporary fiction a lot of contemporary like mainstream sff they're talking about okay yeah let's let's diversify science fiction there's a lot of like what if we did hp lovecraft with latinos in it okay that's all right but you know there are latino sci-fi and horror writers from the olden days right you could, what what if you brought one of those and like in, brought that into the public consciousness, right? Instead of just like trying to play with some old white dudes things, like but but there were there's uh, let me introduce you to someone named Horacio Quiroga. He was really fucking spooky, and he was very cool. Read his work, you know. Like I'd just really like to see more of that energy. So that's part of why I wanted to do this this episode. Yeah, the, <laughs> there's. The, the the work it is being done and and it has it has been done but tying in with what i said before about like people seem to forget every 15 yeah. or 20 years it just has to we just have to keep like doing it over and over again because mm-hmm. pam Sargent published women of wonder the the first women of wonder book in 1974 and it was an anthology of science fiction stories by women to try and put put to rest the lie that women didn't write science fiction right and she edited two more of those in the 70s and then two more came out in the mid 90s women of wonder the classic years which was devoted to old science older authors and then the contemporary years which was uh you know devoted contemporary to contemporary for 1970s well, that one was published in 1995, so it probably oh. had some newer stuff in it. Yeah, the la- classic years and contemporary years came out in the mid-90s, right? So there was that book, well, those books. And then in 2002, I think it was, Justine Larbalestier wrote The Battle of the Sexes in Science Fiction, hmm. which I didn't have time to read. I'm looking at it, though. I'll get to it one of these days. That she was looking at older science fiction, like from the from the the pulp era. That was, I think, her book was talking about it from a more of a, a feminist perspective. I think she focused on stories by by women and possibly men that had the theme of the battle of the sexes, hence the title. But right. she did a lot of interesting academic work in uncovering older work, forgotten authors. Like I said, women of the future's past and the future is female, these more recent stories, these more recent books. And the book, the nonfiction book that I think I've found most interesting, and I'll just mention now, we can talk about it more later, was Partners in Wonder 
Women mm. and the Birth of Science Fiction, 1926 to 1965 by Eric Leif Davin. It's an academic book, but it it's a history of women in science fiction from 1926 to 1965, mostly in the magazine field, which was where science fiction pretty much almost entirely was in those decades. And these are great books, but so it's not that the work hasn't been done. It's just that either people forget or they just don't care. It's a tough stereotype to, to try and break. Yeah, and it's frustrating. So I hope we get to try and break it a little bit today. So why don't we dive into the history? Let's start in the early history or maybe the prehistory of science fiction. I know science fiction as a genre didn't exactly formally exist until like the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people consider Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, written in what, 1818 or 1819, as the first sci-fi story. So let's talk about that pre that era before sci-fi and fantasy were officially genres, but there were clearly people writing what we would now today call sci-fi or now call fantasy. So we mentioned Frankenstein, obviously, no-brainer. Something that strikes me as very interesting is that when people talk about the history of science fiction, they very often don't mention Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I had to read that in college for um, political philosophy class. Long Just time about ago. any like any women's gender studies major has had to read Herland at some point. It's a super important utopian feminist sci-fi novel from around 1915, and it's about these three men, explorers, who discover, well, they come across a society that's entirely women. It's a whole hidden civilization that is made only of women, and they've only ever had women for many, many, many generations. None of these women have ever seen a man in their entire life. And I find it so odd that it's like somehow not not mentioned in in or forgotten yeah, I, about or something. It's very weird to me because this is a very well known story and a quite well known author. This is the same person who wrote the Yellow Wallpaper, which is a, a really really famous. I would call it a psychological horror story and another really famous work of feminist fiction. Yeah, it. I th- I think it it comes down to a problem of classification. I mean, like you said. Well, like we both said, people read it in a women's studies class. I read it in college. It's probably something that most people, if they read it, they come across it in school. So you think of it as a women's issues novel, a utopian novel, which is science fiction right? in a way, but you don't always think of it that way. And also, like you said, it was from 1915 before the formal beginning of science fiction as a genre, when Amazing Stories began publishing in 1926. So a lot of stuff, anything before that, it sometimes it gets classified as, as science fiction, like Jules Verne or, or H.G. Wells. But a lot of the times, it since it falls out of the official beginning of the period, people just don't think of it that way. But they should. Yeah, they should. Herland is absolutely a speculative fiction novel. Completely is. Totally is. Now, are there any other really significant novels from around like 19th century, early, early, early 20th century by women, by diverse authors from before before sci-fi or fantasy was officially considered a genre? Yes. I mentioned her briefly in passing already. 
but we can talk about Frances Stevens. She's the one whose who's husband, she has a, a, a very interesting and kind of mysterious biography. She's, she's the one whose husband uh, Yeah, she was died. widowed because her <laughs> husband died while trying to hunt for sunken treasure. Yep. What? Buried treasure. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Sunken treasure. Uh, like in the ocean, like a Spanish galleon or something. I guess that was just something you could do for a job back then. I guess I, so. I don't know about today. That's such an old timey <laughs> death. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Francis Stevens is probably the, I think the oldest author that I, I was able to research a little bit more heavily, at least as far as, as timelines go, the, the further, the farther back you go, it's easier to talk about, about white women because, because there were more of them. Unfortunately, there 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 really is a uh, a, dar- a a dearth of um, of black writers in in science fiction. There's yeah, a little in the bit 19th more... century. We're talking yeah. severe Jim Crow times. That yeah, that's going to be but... a massive barrier to to diverse writers. Unfortunately, yeah. Although there 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 were a few. Charles W. Chestnut was a, a 19th century black writer who wrote a a short story called the Gooford Grapevine. It's it's in it's collected in Dark Matter, a century of speculative fiction from the African diaspora, edited by current FNSF editor Cherie Renee Thomas. She did this book back in two thousand. We can talk about it more later, perhaps. But so they are out there, but there 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 aren't that many. It uh, it is a shame, and of course we can. There are a lot of things we can blame for that right. same thing with um gay authors yeah um, you couldn't really be open about that it was it was century. it was tough uh and yeah. granted a ton of 19th century literature in in retrospect you look at the the author's personal letters and then you read that and you're like oh this guy was super gay and this book has so much queer subtext but right unfortunately you couldn't you would be arrested for being open about that that so we kind of have to go for like based on vibes yeah and the 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 couple of there are a couple of gay writers that i that i wrote little bios on just short things for for this podcast and yeah that that is the truth they were mostly closeted you can only realize it in retrospect decades later looking at the work and being like oh wow this has a lot of homosexual vibes to it um because you know it was looking at their personal correspondence and that's provided that their 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 family did not burn them all yeah yeah exactly it was it was just it was dangerous to to be out i think david gerald might have been one of the the first out gay gay men writing science fiction or or maybe frank m robinson i'm i honestly i'm not sure if when exactly he came out but beyond just um, you could classify portrait of dorian gray or is it the picture of dorian gray as a dark fantasy oh right oscar wilde of course i I I think you do i I know we know there's no doubting whether or not oscar wilde is gay he was he was the gayest man who ever lived, perhaps. Um, and, and I do think you could kind of, of call it a, a. I think you could call it an example of a dark fantasy novel if you if you want to. I, yeah, I, I, I basically agree with that. Also, an example of the dangers if the wider society finds out that that you are gay. Oscar Wilde yeah. went to jail. 
but just the but before I start on Francis Stevens, as as long as we're talking right. about the subject of, of homosexuality, beyond just being personally dangerous for for these writers to be out, something that I I don't I assume it's not a law anymore, but back in the middle of the twentieth century, there was a law the the post office had the right to what's the word I I think the word is remand things that they that they mailed basically like if you were publishing obscene content you know anything that i guess society back then objected to the post office had the right to confiscate all the magazines that they were mailing and not mail them like that they'd take them back and they did do this so it was also risky business for for the publishers all sorts of obscenity laws and and censorship things like that so it was just a a tough situation overall so there are probably a lot more gay and lesbian writers from early in the 20th century the first half of the 20th century who are are just invisible to us but so francis stevens uh gertrude barrows sunken treasure widow she was there's a widespread myth in both the science fiction field and in society that you know Back in the old days, decades ago, a century ago, if women wanted to write science fiction, first of all, they didn't write science fiction. And second of all, if they did, they had to hide behind a male pseudonym. This is one of the big things that the book Partners in Wonder really dispels. It's it's a myth for the most part within the science fiction field. But Frances Stevens is one of the few exceptions to, to this rule. She is one of the few women who actually did write under a male name. It's Francis spelled F-R-A-N-C-I-S. Oh, and Stevens with a V, not a P-H, just in case anybody is interested in looking her up. She did write under a male pseudonym. So let me just give some bio background. She was born in 1884 in Minneapolis. She had to leave grammar school in order to work. She sold her first story to Argosy Magazine when she was a teenager. In 1904, it was called The Curious Experience of Thomas Dunbar, and she published it under the byline G.M. Barrows. So initials, but it is her own name. Plenty of men published under their initials as well. I don't think anybody is assuming that the H in H.P. Lovecraft stood for Helen. Um, right. Part of it's so, probably just avoiding embarrassment, because I'm guessing there was a st- there might have been a little bit of a stigma against, like, you're writing these silly stories about... <laughs> about aliens or whatever or or about monsters come on get serious yeah well now now you're getting ahead of me in my notes that is true but also just like back then like a lot of people i think it was just something that people did a lot of people published under initials um but yeah, so anyway you wanted to avoid attracting attention to yourself it could just be a little bit embarrassing and like oh who do you think you are fancy pants mm. so she met and married her husband, an Englishman named Stuart Bennett, in 1909. In 1910, eight months after the birth of their daughter Josephine, her husband, Stuart Bennett, as we have already said, drowned in a storm while on an expedition to recover sunken treasure, which, what a way to go. Yeah. And then a few years after that, Stephen's father also died. 
leaving her a single mother of a small child. And she also had her her invalid mother that she had to take care of. Jesus. Yeah. So she couldn't work outside of the home and she didn't have much money. Like I said, she had already written and sold a story when she was a teenager. So she turned back to writing in this period to to support herself. It seems that all of her adult output, she only wrote for a few years and then stopped writing in 1920. So from about 1917 to, to 1920 or so, she published six novels in Argosy Ow. Magazine. Yeah, obviously shorter than today's books, but still novels. Right. These are The Nightmare, The Labyrinth, Citadel of Fear, Claimed, Seraphion and something called Avalon. She also published a novel in a magazine called The Thrill Book, and that novel is The Heads of Cerberus, and then a short novel in Weird Tales in, in 1923. So she was very prolific during a very short period of time. Yes, yes. Just churning um, it out to, to keep a roof over her head. Yes, she was very prolific. So the the, the story of how she got her um her pen name, she sent her first story to uh she also wrote a small number of, uh, of short stories so the first thing that she sent she sent it to the magazine all story weekly and uh the editor there bob davis she sent the story under her own name she didn't conceal her gender from the editor she wanted it she wanted the story if it was bought she sent it with the request that it be uh, published under the female pseudonym Jean Vale. Uh, and the story that I'm talking about vale. was the, uh, Yeah, Jean Vale. Oh Jean my vale. God, that's not subtle. But for some reason, uh, the editor Bob Davis ran it under the name Francis Stevens. Now, it's possible that he did that for, for sexist reasons. It's not known why he did that. The books that I that I read this in say that like we, we don't know a specific reason why he did that. But the point is he did run it under the name Francis Stevens. He bought the story, he published it, he ran it and it was yeah. really popular. So, you know, now she was just kind of stuck with this name. So, oh, well, but she was, she was very popular at the time. One of her stories, she wrote a bunch of different things. She's been called the inventor of dark fantasy. She was a oh, wow. uh, she was an influence on H.P. Lovecraft and A. Merritt. I realize now I don't know what the A in A. Merritt stands for. I think he's he's kind of forgotten now, but he he was a, a popular science fiction writer. Oh, I think I kind of want to say in the in the twenties and thirties. But so they they were both fans of of her work. I don't know when exactly it became known that that Frances Stevens was was a woman, at least by the time that that her her work was getting republished in the 1940s. It was widely known in the science fiction community that Stevens was a woman, even though they, they didn't know her her true identity. Nobody knew who she actually was for uh, for a long time. Yeah, but so like I said, she's she's been called the the woman who invented dark fantasy. That's so uh, cool. The Citadel of Fear is a lost world novel, and uh, oh. The Heads of Cerberus is an early dystopian novel. Sam Moskowitz, who was a an important historian of science fiction fandom, and I think he organized the first Worldcon in 1939. 
he has written that she was the greatest woman writer of science fantasy in the period between Mary Shelley and C.L. Moore. So, wow. you know, this is it's it's high praise. Uh, yeah, I'm, those, I'm those are the to... giant. Those are huge. Like C.L. Moore was massive. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in reading her work one of these days. Hopefully I'll yeah. live to be 100. Most of her short fiction is you, you can find newer editions of her, of, uh, of her work. What else can I say about her? Oh, so they didn't even know when when she passed away. She lived to be the age of 63. Like I said, all of her, she stopped writing in 1920. Mm. What happened was that, you know, her mother eventually passed away. And with that all said and done, she was able to leave her daughter in other people's care and go back to work. Sometime in the early 1930s, she moved to California and uh, lost touch with her daughter. Even in the mm. by the early 1980s, they didn't know when, when she died. She was estranged from her daughter. For a long time, people thought that she died in 1939 because her daughter mailed her a letter that got returned as undeliverable. And oh, so wow. long time. Yeah. So for a long time, people thought that she must have died before that. But somebody... Uh, I think in the early 80s and one of the times that some of her books were reprinted, somebody had uh, done some research and and found her death certificate. And uh, she actually died in 1948. Her real name, Gertrude Barrows Bennett, wasn't even revealed until 1952 uh, in a reprint of The Citadel of Fear. So, yeah, mysterious woman. Yeah. But pretty interesting. (laughs) Pretty interesting. She has the kind of biography that like writers don't have anymore, where her life was very, very strange and mysterious and, and full of exciting tragedies. Well, especially you don't see many author bios who was like widowed by sunken pirate treasure. So, you know. <laughs> widowed by sunken pirate treasure. Yeah. Widowed by fucking Captain Jack Sparrow over here. Like, what? That's wild. Est- yeah. Estranged from her daughter, went off yeah. to die in mystery. Yeah. Interesting yeah. person. So yeah. l- let's move on to the pulp era, the pulp era in the 1920s, 1930s, so-called because of the emergence of pulp magazines, these very cheaply printed magazines. There was the sudden explosion of them because I, I guess you could just print shit that way and the technology to print magazines like that before wasn't really widespread. So you got this explosion of pulp magazines called because they're printed on this really really cheap paper they were mm-hmm. they were really popular there were tons and tons of genre short fiction magazines western romance and in the midst of that you got the emergence of sci-fi magazines that's right amazing the first science fiction magazine started publishing in 1926 i think astounding started in 1930 and uh, and and many others over the next couple of decades science wonder stories so even at this early date of the the formal beginnings of the genre even even then women do pop up pretty early so the first issue of amazing i think it was june 1926 and just about a year after that Maybe not even a, a full year. Oh gosh, what is her name? Oh, Claire Winger Harris published a story in Amazing Stories, and she was the first woman to publish 
a story in a science fiction magazine. Oh, okay. So the first issue of Amazing was April 1926. Her story ran in the June 1927 issue. So, so just a, a year after the formal beginnings of the, of the genre, women are there. But even then, like I, I was talking before about classification, there's within the science fiction field, there's all kinds of slicing and dicing that I think today seems odd to us because I think the, the general trend of both writers and readers today is to not really make that much of a distinction between science fiction and fantasy. It's all genre, yeah. right? But yeah, yeah, it's all made up stuff. Right. But it's all fake. It doesn't matter. But back in those days, back back in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, and really probably up until maybe the the last 15 years, maybe the last 20 years. But so right up until then, there was a big distinction between science fiction and fantasy and horror. People really cared about it. So even though Claire Winger Harris is the first woman to publish in a science fiction magazine, see who we're just talking about. Uh, Gertrude? Yes. Um, Frances Stevens, she was publishing science fiction, but she wasn't publishing it in science fiction magazines. She was publishing it in regular general pulp fiction magazines, and her stories just happened to be science fiction and fantasy. So, but so like, it doesn't count. And then... Oh, it doesn't count, okay. Well, it, it didn't count back then, and <laughs> I, I guess it counts, I guess it counts now. But so, but so she's not... So that's, that's why so fedora -y. That's so like um actually she didn't publish it technically in a science fiction magazine, so she doesn't really count. In in a way it's dumb, but I I also I also like it. I mean I I like I like science fiction and I like fantasy. And I personally I like it I like them separate. I like them when they're sort of combined, but I, I, I do like the distinctions. But anyway, so that's so that's why her first claim is so specific, right? Because so yeah. Amazing Stories started publishing in 1926, but Weird Tales magazine, another very famous magazine that I think anybody today would be like, oh yeah, genre, science fiction and fantasy, right? But that's not how it was seen at the time and for decades later. Weird Tales was a fantasy and horror magazine. And that Weird Tales started publishing in 1923, so three years earlier, so mm. none of that counts for science fiction either. And in fact, Claire Winger Harris, this story that she that she published, and uh, and just to give some other bio background about her, she was born in 1891, died in 1968 when she was 77. The story that that she published in Amazing it was it was for amazing's first first story contest her story was the fate of the poseidonia it won third prize and she yeah. won a hundred dollars as That's well as getting money back then yeah right and she became a regular contributor to amazing and one of its most popular writers but that wasn't even her fir her fiction debut she she wrote a novel a historical romance in 1923 called Persephone of Eleusis. And that wasn't, so she wrote a novel in 1923 and her amazing story wasn't even the first short story in the genre that she published because a year before in July, 1926, 
she published a short story called A Runaway World in Weird Tales. Hmm. So, like I said, you know, you make the they make these distinctions as to what right. counts as as what. So she was pretty versatile, though. She's writing romance. She's writing fantasy. She's writing sci-fi. Yeah, she was an interesting. She seems like she was an interesting woman. Uh, I found a a web page about her that had some biographical information that was provided by uh, somebody tracked down one of her grandchildren. She so she was married in in 1912 before completing a degree from Smith College and uh, then gave birth to three sons in 1915, 1916 and 1918. So like I said her she was writing in the 20s. She stopped writing in 1930. She in science fiction magazines. She was a regular contributor to Amazing Stories and she was popular. But the the first iteration of Amazing Stories, it only lasted for about, I think, three years. The publisher, Hugo Gernsback, he, he got taken to bankruptcy court and he lost control of it. So it ended up in somebody else's hands in, I, mm. I think, either 1929 or 1930. But anyway, so she stopped writing in 1930, except for a story or two that she contributed to fanzines, actually run by as a favor to 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 Jerry Siegel, who was a high schooler, putting out this this little fanzine. And of course, when I say Jerry Siegel, I mean the Jerry Siegel, as in Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster, the co-creators of Superman. So that's pretty neat. Mm, um, wow. And even though she she wasn't an active writer after 1930, she still participated in the in the fan community. She got divorced in 1940. In that web page that I was talking about earlier, with the, the person who tracked down one of Harris's grandchildren, I just remember reading that he said that his grandparents, Claire Harris and her husband, they were, they were both the sort of people who each of them have to be like the the alpha so mm. i guess it, it might have been a contentious marriage a, after a, a time i i only say that to illustrate the fact that she must have been a, a very interesting and and strong-willed person so her, her her fiction was collected she um she put out her collected science fiction in uh 1947 i don't seem to have written oh it was called away from the here and now and it was one of the earliest single author science fiction collections ever published she actually had to put it out through a vanity press oh no yeah i th i think that's you could probably chalk that up more to the fact that there wasn't a very big market for science fiction stories in in book form at that time mm. uh i mean there might have been some discrimination at play but i i, I just don't know uh my first instinct would be to assume that the book market at that time for science fiction was very small. It's been reprinted a couple of times, I think most recently by a micro press named Suriname Turtle Press in uh, in 2011. But so yes, Claire Winger Harris. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Th there is more. Something that, like I said, there's this myth that women had to hide false names man's names initials and the the fact of the matter is that in the period of the earliest phase of the genre from like 1926 until about let's say like 1960 that really wasn't true 
even though mm. women writers were a minority in the field, they were pretty much mostly welcomed with open arms, both by the, the readership, obviously not entirely. And, and we can go into that a little more. That's yeah. kind of funny. But they didn't face discrimination from the editors. The, the editors of the magazines were all in some way or another pretty open and they published women. They wanted stories by women. They published women as women. They didn't make people write under false names. Bob Davis and Francis Stevens, that's that's an outlier. So like I said, when when she sent in that story, The Fate of the Poseidonia, to the amazing story competition, she sent it under her own name with Mrs. appended Ooh. to the front of her name. So Gernsback knew that she was a woman and he published yeah. her anyway. One of her stories, A Runaway World, was an early example, possibly the first use of the idea of Earth merely being an electron in an impossibly large universe. And going back to what I said about women published openly as women, one of her stories ran in an issue of Science Wonder Quarterly, and her portrait accompanied her story. And this oh. was something that would happen in those days. Uh, not all the time, but from time to time, if a woman published a story, there'd be a photograph to go along with it of her. So anybody who read that story would know like, oh, a woman wrote this. A dame wrote okay. this one. She also wrote a story called The Miracle of the Lily, which poses the question, what is human? Which is one of the first, if it may be not the first instance of this classic, I, I hesitate to say trope, but so many science fiction books work from this basic premise of what is it to be human so right there you go and it was claire winger harris hey yeah so it sounds like she was really really innovative and, and a real groundbreaking writer yes many of them were uh yeah. i mean you're the it, you're you're writing in the first science fiction magazine chances are you're going to be the first person to write certain stories and just talking about Women more broadly, and, and here I, I am going to start drawing more on, on Partners in Wonder. The author, Eric Leif Davin, it's really a great work of scholarship. Something that Chris Rush talks about in her introductory essay of Women of, of Futures Past is that there is a bias in the field against women, but a lot of it where it's coming from is from later male writers and mm. sometimes later female writers, but like people after the fact in the field, retrospective anthologists, profilers, dudes who make hundred greatest books slash authors lists on their blogs, mm. you know? Yeah. And it just so happens that uh, the vast majority of the people and books on those lists are dudes, right? Right. So the thing is, if you uh, and and Davin wrote this in the book. So what what he what I'm trying to say is what he did was he actually went back. He tracked down pretty much every pulp, well, every magazine, every science fiction magazine ever published. Wow, including Weird Tales. From 1926 to 1965. And that's not and easy to do because that shit is like really cheaply printed. It it yeah. disintegrates. They're, it is they're hard to archive. There might not 
be a complete run of weird tales that exists or or if there if there are there there've only got to be a very small handful of them I, I i he would he would have had to have gone to like people's personal collections yeah um, maybe some like university libraries things like that but tough to do it's he's a professor so you know before internet or something right that he did uh, this he, it was published in 2006 oh okay yeah, so from reading it, it seemed like he was plugged into to fandom in like his own local part of it. I, th- I think he was from Pittsburgh, and from there, you know, people make introductions, who make introductions. But at any rate, he was able to to basically look at every single science issue of a science fiction magazine that was ever published from like these 40 or so years and look at the table of contents and just start counting who's got a man's name who's got a woman's name who's got a man's name is this name indeterminate and he actually did a lot of work to like try and track down these people and actually uncover their identities that's another interesting part of the book Mm. there are there's a, a, a section of short biographies for about like a hundred or so of these women writers in the back of the book. It is. And what I'm trying to say is Davin writes that if he had just, instead of doing all this legwork and really all this work, that's like pretty much impossible for a regular person to do. Even if somebody were like writing, wanted to write like a history of the science fiction field, you know, unless you're a, a professional academic, I, I spent all summer working on this podcast and what Davin did is I, I could never, I could never do that. Right. So most people, when they look, when they want to look at the history of the field, what they do is, is that they look at retrospective anthologies, mm. science fiction of the forties, science fiction of the thirties, adventures in space and time, like these, these big retrospective anthologies that purport to be, this is the snapshot of the field at these various times. Right. And the thing is they, pretty much all skew heavily male yeah and he even says that if he had relied on these books he wouldn't have had much to write about um yeah this is all just a a lead up to saying that in his book he he davin there are 203 known women who published stories in science fiction magazines specifically science fiction so that doesn't even count weird tales between 1926 and 1960, 203 women right. in those 34 years, and they collectively published nearly a thousand stories. So women in these decades in science fiction, they're definitely a minority, but it's also a huge body of work by a huge number of people, literally yeah. tons of women. So anybody who knows anything, you can't. You just can't say that there were no women in science fiction because, like I said, there were 200 of them, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's um, that's really cool that he put in the legwork to do that instead of just it's reading a, It's the, a great book. Yeah. Like, that's, um, that's so much work, just hunting <laughs> down each and every individual. Because people – these weren't – these things weren't made to be preserved and taken care of. These were sort of cheap magazines that were being put out for a, a quick profit. So there wasn't, no one was thinking, ah, I hope someone reads this thing in 50 years. Like no one gave a shit. Exactly. <laughs> so it's super away. hard to hunt these things down. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a myth that women had to hide behind male names. I think part of the problem is that like people, 
you know, when I say that it was a myth that they had to hide behind male names, I'm specifically talking about the science fiction and fantasy field. People think about, I think Jane Austen's books were originally published anonymously. George yeah. Eliot was a, a female pseudonym. Or even, not to talk about it too much, but even in more modern times, obviously J.K. Rowling yeah. published Harry Potter under obscure uh, initials. But you know, and her grown-up books are under a man's name, like right, but him, which... right, but she didn't have to do that. And even with Harry yeah. Potter, even though it's it's fantasy, it's a kid's book about a boy, and the publisher, maybe rightly, I don't know, thought that you know, if there's a girl's name on it, an eleven-year-old boy isn't going to read it, which could be true, or at least back when it would have come out in like 1998, right? But that's not the adult science fiction field in the 1930s yeah. these are different times different contexts so you can't apply you can't apply it to to them so like i said so it's it's a myth from 1926 to 1949 no woman deliberately who was deliberately trying to hide her gender by using a male pen name published a story in a science fiction magazine except for maybe one exception see now i'm starting to these we get into such fine-grained distinctions. The exception yeah. that I'm thinking about is a, a woman named L. Taylor Hansen. Davin talks about her. The, the L stood for Lucille. Um, she wrote science fiction stories, but she was primarily a science fact writer. She wrote articles mm. for, I have it here somewhere, but I'm not looking at it. I think it was Amazing Stories in the 30s. She wrote like about 50 or so science fact articles. So she was definitely trying to obscure her gender. Uh, her her editor helped her in doing that. But I, I think Davin also writes that she was like a deliberatively secretive person. She gave out, I think her name might have been Lucille. I'd, I'd have to flip through pages to find it. But like sometimes she told people like she gave like a different first name that wasn't her real first name. But Right. But more importantly, there's the science fiction field and then there's the field of actual science. Right. And yeah. since the two, they're separate, but they're closely associated with each other. So people assume one thing applies to the other. And obviously, the field of real science, definitely sexist. Probably oh, yeah. still today. Yeah. And it certainly was back then. Right. Yeah, super, so, really, really fucking bad for, based on oh. stories I've heard. It's really, really bad. <laughs> Right. So since she was primarily a science fact writer, she might have felt that like to give herself more authority as a science fact writer. Well, I don't want people to know that I'm a woman. Right. So but yeah, even then we're getting that. into like really ticky tacky exceptions. In fact, during the same period, 1926 to 1949, Davin was able to uncover that four men published four or five stories under female pseudonyms huh yeah so if there really was this that's interesting big bias i have against... definitely heard of contemporary male writers publishing under female pseudonyms when they're writing romance or like right, yeah, smut because but... they're worried that people will think they're creeps or, or that women won't want to buy their books so i have heard that so i'm wondering if that were these kind of romantic oriented stories or I honestly don't know, but they they did appear in science fiction magazines, so you know okay. it kind of uh, it kind of puts the the lie to to the that myth. That is interesting. Yeah, um, 
who else could I no. talk about? So, something you did mention is that the president, the first president of the first science fiction fan club in history, Warren Fitzgerald, might have been black. Maybe. Maybe. Um, that's a maybe. Yeah. So I, I learned about him. There's a Partners in Wonder talks about him for a little bit. So Warren Fitzgerald, the first president of the first science fiction fan club in history, was a black man. Or was he? So what it is, is the, the first science fiction fan club in history was called the Scienceers. It was a bunch of teenage Jewish fans and one 30-year-old black man, Warren Fitzgerald. That is an he, interesting combination. Yep. He was unanimously elected the club's first president. They had meetings at his home in Harlem. Right at the, the very start of fandom, there is a, a strong minority presence of, of Jewish and black people which stands in, in contrast to the segregated nature of broader society of, of that time. In, in Partners in Wonder, Davin incorrectly gives Fitzgerald's first name as James. I, I read somewhere else that he picked up this mistake from Sam Moskowitz, who was prone to making mistakes like that. Sometimes he gave his name as James. Sometimes Moskowitz gave his name as, as Warren. But so anyway, he was so he was known within the field to to be black. What I'm trying to say is that people mostly knew about this from one of the fans, Alan Glasser, about 30 years after the fact in uh, in 1961 in a in a fanzine. He was being interviewed about the history of the fandom, the history of the scienceers. So he was talking about Fitzgerald and how, and he said that he was a, a light-skinned black man, quote, hmm. well, actually, quote, a light-skinned, um, well, uh, the word he uses is slightly anachronistic, so just a black right, guy. Right, right. It was not, not as bad as it could be, but you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then he went on to say, amiable, cultured, and a fine gentleman in every sense of that word, end quote, right? So he's working off of his memory 30 years ago from when he was a teenager, right? But so he said that he was black. Glasser said that Fitzgerald was black. That's why we know that, right? Hmm. But he might not actually have been black when I was uh, researching him. I think I might have bookmarked this. I found some kind of people were commenting this big, long comment section on some website where like people were like trying to like track Fitzgerald down through online census records and uh, and things like that. So he might actually Fitzgerald might actually have been a, uh, a white man. Oh my um, God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, was he a, like a light-skinned black man who was just passing because, you know, it was the olden times and in Jim Crow era, your your life would be a hell of a lot better if you could pass as white. And I can't I can't blame anyone for wanting to do that because it means you can access more of society. Or was this like a Rachel Dolezal situation? Uh, like, well, I don't know if that would have happened back then. Yeah, because um, you, yeah. didn't, you didn't get like you didn't get Special you know treatment. cool points. In like yeah. 1920, whatever, for being black, you, you, you had a very bad time. 
Right. So yeah, you you could be right. So he was he was born in the 1890s, I, I think. He was a World War One veteran. Right. Uh, he was born in Pennsylvania. His census records count him as white. Oh. Uh, what do I? What else do I have? So he died in Boise in 1978, just as a matter of interest. His World War II draft card also states that he was white, but also said hmm. that he noted that his complexion was light brown. Hmm. Uh, he was in the Marine Corps in 1919, and since the military was segregated, uh, right both then and in World War II. If he was black, he would have had to have been able to pass to be in the Marine Corps. So, yeah, so these these people in, in the online really went to a lot of trouble to, to try and track him down. Yeah, like you said, there's there's a couple of options. Either he was black, but he could pass as white, or he was actually white living living in, a, uh, in an interracial marriage and... I don't know, Glasser, either being a a teenager at the time, like, I don't know, maybe he had a, he might've been prejudiced about interracial marriages. Well, now I'm starting to speculate, but, but the point is, you know, right. Glasser comes up and sees like, oh, this guy lives in a black neighborhood. He's married to a black woman. I guess he's black, whatever. Um, yeah. You know, I could see that too. Like, just right. Being, yeah. Yeah. Or, huh. you know, he, he might have been of mixed race and could present differently to different people based yeah. on his context. Like they say, race is just a construct. There's a one of one of the online uh, sources that I, I, I dug through talking that was talking about Fitzgerald makes the point that even if he was white, even though we can't, you know, say the like, wow, there were black people right at the start of fandom, it it doesn't change the. The racial acceptance of the other fans at the time, because they appear, at least from what we know nowadays, they appear to have thought that he was black and didn't mind. So that's nice. Yeah. But anyway, so whatever he was, he was the president of the Scienceers from December 11th, 1929 until the spring of 1930. So just a few months. I guess it was kind of weird for a, a 30 year old married dude to be in a uh, a fan club with a bunch to of be teenagers. in a teenage fan club that is kind of weird not gonna he, lie uh, that's yeah. a little weird warren yeah he um there was this other group called the american rocket society that oh. um approached <laughs> people loved rockets back in those days the scienceers american rocket society these are such dorky names they're so cute yeah so them. that was so that was like an adult group. I, I think it was like devoted to promoting rockets. They approached the scienceers and asked them to be like, hey, would you like to be an affiliate group of ours? They didn't want to do that. And um, so Fitzgerald um, just left the group and joined the American Rocket Society instead. Huh. I think probably just because they were also adults. Yeah. 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 So just a an interesting little tidbit about... Yeah possibly the first possibly. black president of a science fiction fan club. That is maybe. pretty cool. Okay. So let us carry on to the golden age. Now, the golden age it's sort of late 1950 or late 1930s, 1940s, yes. sort of the 1950s were a transitional period, but let's move on toward that area that era past the the pulp era and more toward the late 30s the 40s the 50s the era of space opera being really really big where the the classic 
damsel in the arms of a robot and a dude with a ray gun and and all that really wonderful stuff. Yeah, still technically in the pulp era. The pulp magazines didn't didn't go out of business and die until in the forties, and I think the that they hung around until the mid fifties, maybe like. 1954 yeah. but they they were definitely on the decline in the post-war period for for economic reasons but yeah so uh the golden age uh, i guess it would start in in 1938 once john w campbell became the editor of astounding he took over with the december 1937 issue and um well i guess the golden age in terms of campbell and astounding's golden age i think lasts until about 1950 or so, 1951, when um, FNSF and Galaxy start publishing. I guess we could speak of the Golden Age as a broader era. Yeah. Lasting in, until the early or mid-60s or so when, when uh, New Wave picks up. But yeah, it's, it's really a, uh, it's a continuation for, for women writers in this period because they're, like I said, women started publishing in science fiction until just about a year after the start of the genre and every decade there were more women writing more stories than there had been in the previous decade Mm. now something interesting that you mentioned to me while we were preparing for this is that space opera was very much like a female thing I did not expect that at all. My impression of space opera is that it's the classic, oh, big male He-Man doing patriarchal things, blah, blah, blah. But like, apparently it was a ton of women writing space opera and it was almost considered kind of a female thing. In a way, I think so. That's what I have read. That is Christine Rush in in her introduction basically makes that claim. I think... uh... Was it Stan Weinbaum or maybe Olaf Stapleton or, or both might have also published what could be considered space opera. I'm not as up on very old science fiction as I, I think I would like to be. But the the question of women writing space opera, they definitely did. This ties into um, one of the ways that women get left out of... Uh, of history and, and and the popular imagination, their work isn't really recognized as either it's not recognized as science fiction or it's not recognized as real science fiction. They get caught up uh. in disagreements about what counts as real science fiction. So space opera was very popular in the 1930s and it continued to, to hang around. It, it, it was still popular in its way in, in the fifties, but what happened, or at least what what I think happened, is that the Campbellian Revolution, once John W. Campbell started publishing, started editing Astounding, he really did change what science fiction was. So generally, weird fiction, horror, and space opera were looked down upon by the, the, the vocal majority of fans and writers of the, the 40s through the early 60s. You know, these are the people who loved hard science fiction, Campbellian science fiction, and, and those are the kind of writers that they championed. And that echoes on through the decades, right? Because, you know, mm. even if you were like a kid in the 50s, you could still be reading Campbell's magazine as it was current, or you could even have found older issues of his. So there, there are still people, older people alive today who are like, yes, this is science fiction. So any science fiction that like didn't, conform to rigorous 
hard scientific extrapolation, it tended to be sort of put in the dustbin a little bit, or or at least certain subgenres were seen as passe. Space opera is one of these by the 1940s. What happened was that a lot of um, a lot of science fiction in the 30s and and even into the 40s, if you take Chamblo by C.L. Moore as an example, it, it was her debut story and incredibly popular. It was it was published in in Weird Tales. Less known today, but it, it was a very very popular story for 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 decades, and as was C.L. Moore. But anyway, so that story takes place on Mars, but Mars has an atmosphere. It it's, has more of the the main character, Northwest Smith. He's kind of like a prototype for Han Solo. Mm. So even though it takes place on Mars, it has a very old West type of feel to okay. the story. People just like walking around. And then people wrote stories about everybody's hanging out on Venus and it's a oh, jungle. Oh yeah, those were so right? popular. Right, yeah, yeah. So like there were all these stories where they were writing to what was cur- what was current in science at the time, but there was just so much that people didn't know in terms of science. So, you know, there was a lot of room to play around and kind of do whatever you wanted. And scientific advancements of the 40s and 50s rendered huge swaths of science fiction of the 1930s. It turned it, these advances turned this older science fiction into unscientific space fantasy stories. Right. And that was passe. Um, right. Even though at the time people didn't know, people didn't know that these were uninhabitable. Right. Know? Exactly. They just had no right. reason not to and be like, fuck it. Yeah. Maybe there's people on Venus. Fuck it. Let's go. Let's check it out. Right. I mean, the Russians exactly. were still trying to like land on Venus up until the 1970s. They were obsessed with it. <laughs> Every other space opera story where they land on Venus, it's full of hot chicks. So maybe that's what they were trying to find. Right. Yeah. So so like I said, golden age science fiction, it's supposed to be hard science fiction, rigorous right. based on real science. And all of a sudden, all this space opera is no longer real science. When you read Damon Knight's intros to his retrospective anthology, Science Fiction of the 30s, I really got a sense of the difference of opinion in terms of what is science fiction, what is the best of science fiction between then and today. And, you know, it really does seem that Back in the golden age, people really made the hard distinction that science fiction is distinct and superior to fantasy and horror and occult, mm-hmm. and not just science fiction, but hard science fiction. And uh, and it was Campbell. What makes who made a story good? Is math. Yeah, that's what well, makes it, good art when the math is accurate. That's what I want. It's an interesting body of <laughs> of literature, hard science fiction of the golden ages, because it's a literature of ideas, which is interesting because. The characters are all mostly kind of flat. Yeah. Ursula K. Le Guin made in one of one of her essays, one of her early essays in writing about the period, she made the point that because hard SF is literature of ideas, all the characters are flat or they're as fleshed out as they need to be, both the men and the women characters, because yeah. they just didn't care about characters. It was about the ideas. So yeah. It's cool in the sense of it was always trying to like search for new ideas, but you know, it seems like it's kind of run its course. And now that we're looking back at it, an idea that was new then, now it's been done by everybody a hundred times. So I think it it tends to come off as kind of flat. And I think 
if you look back at the weird tale stuff or even the the, the space opera stuff, things that people in the 40s would have thought of as like alien punching kitty crap, if it has evocative prose or interesting right. characters, that's what resonates with us today. It's, you know, it's it's just... Yeah, like we accept that this is all bullshit. We don't care. It's a fun story. Yeah, so space opera in general tended to get pushed aside as unscientific, unserious junk. And a lot of women did write it. So it's just, I don't know if you could say that it's sexism exactly. I think it's just sort of, it's an interesting, it's an interesting subgenre debate, but it, it does it did tend to uh, to erase women of the time or even lee brackets her whole kurt schiller of of blood knife was saying this to me at one point pretty much everything she wrote even in the 1950s when she was writing her space adventure stories like even in the 1950s it was already a throwback style by that point mm -hmm. but but that doesn't mean that it's uh it's bad work yeah yeah but yeah the changing of scientific knowledge it did the same thing for space opera stories that it's the same thing that happened to all those esp novels in the 50s because you right. know back then it's like what is the frontier of human mental potential will yeah, we have maybe mind control real. yeah but of course we, we know like now it's a lot of crap yeah, yeah. yeah so it's all crap we found out that the government wasted a crazy amount of money trying to make psychic soldiers to fight the russians yeah, I've got some some more some more numbers just to to put paid to the idea that there were no women in old science fiction. Again, from from Davin, there were six female writers at the end of the 1920s, 35 at the end of the 1930s, 47 by in hmm. the 1940s, and during the 1950s, and you know, th there might have been more. These were just the people that he could identify as female. There were 154 female authors who wrote 634 stories in that decade alone. That's and not this bad. doesn't even, yeah, and it doesn't even include the 365 stories by 127 women who published in Weird Tales. Ooh. Yeah, there was right. a big boom of, uh, of women's science fiction in the 50s. You could call it the, like the first wave feminist science fiction yeah you mentioned that there was a lot of women's sort of domestic sci-fi coming out of the 1950s yes as you might imagine i guess just given the the broader societal trends of the time and this is another way that women get erased so one of the broad themes of women's science fiction of the 1950s is that it dealt <sighs> in large part with domestic issues. Mothers raising children, mothers with a household, grandparents, teachers, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, it wasn't all that way, but there is this identifiable subset of science fiction written by women that you could call domestic science fiction. Of course, it it's like it's ideological erasure. Mm. And of course, men do it. It's like, oh, it was just women's stories, chick stories. It's it's unserious. Yeah. It doesn't matter. What is it about babies or something? I don't care. Yeah. But Even women though, do like too. male domestic stories do get taken seriously. Like that Ray Bradbury story, I think it's called Dark They Were and Golden Eyed. Like Ooh. that is a domestic story. Yeah. It's about a dad growing apart from his children. Right. Yeah. So like when men do it, obviously it's like, wow, that's important. What, what a deep look. Girls. 
yeah, what what a deep look into into the man's soul and like what it is to be a man. So definitely sexist, but but women do it too. Uh, you know, for like ideological reasons or career reasons, or I, I don't know why. In Pamela Sargent's long introductory essay in Women of Wonder, which, which is very interesting, but in it, she alleges that many women writers of the 1950s wrote housewife stories about, uh, quote, passive or addle-brained women who solve science fiction problems by accident. Uh, I don't really know if that's true. I don't, I don't think it is. My hunch is that it's like, second wave feminist bias because she does in her intro give some examples including a writer named Anne Warren Griffith who I think is pretty cool if I could talk about her a little bit so she wrote I'm sorry did I say yeah Anne Warren Griffith so she only wrote two science fiction stories one in Galaxy and then the story that I want to talk about a little bit it's called Captive Audience. It ran in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, August 1953. It was reprinted in the Best from FNSF third series. Uh, that's where I first read it a few years ago. And so the thing is, here, let me let me give a, a longer quote of Sargent from her Women of Wonder essay. She said that most science fiction of women, most science fiction written by women of the 50s was, quote, housewife heroines. These characters were usually passive or addle-brained and solved problems inadvertently, through ineptitude, or in the course of fulfilling their assigned roles in society. They showed women as child raisers, as consumers of goods, or wives trying to hold their families together after an atomic holocaust, end quote. So you can see, like, there's kind of an ideological axis to grind, and she says that captive audience is one of these stories. But Captive Audience is actually a really great story. What's it about? What? Okay. It is the story of a woman. Uh, a house, it's the story of a family. They live in a science fictional 50s world where advertising basically rules everybody's lives. And w- what I mean by that is that you wake up in the morning and you open your your pantry and all your different breakfast cereals are all screaming at you because literally every consumer oh, wow. good and product and appliance has like a little microchip and speaker in it. So they're all like shouting ads at you like, hey, mom, oh, wow. have Choco Blast cereal. It's the great way to start the day for your kids. And you go to the supermarket and literally everything in the supermarket is screaming at you to buy oh, it. Wow. That's and the really woman's good. Yeah, no, it's. Okay, this story is, it is so caustic. It's like it's, it was like she wrote it in acid. It, it's, it's it really feels very like eighties and nineties. You know that very like white noise. Very so many authors coming out with these stories about the emptiness of suburban consumerism and kill your television and shit. It sounds very much like it would fit into that. Yeah, exactly. And so the the woman's husband is the vice president of marketing for the company that makes all these that puts all these different ads oh, in these wow. in these things. And the woman's grandmother comes to visit from jail because she like refuses to listen to the ads. She puts earplugs in her ears, which this was really funny to me rereading the story uh, yeah. this year. The the topper to it is that the Supreme Court decided that it was illegal not to listen to the ads. Oh, wow. Supreme Court, everybody. 
Yeah, our Supreme Court business. would probably decide that, honestly. like I know, right? Yeah, Kavanaugh would 100% make that ruling. Yeah, so, like, it's a great story. And it, it really, like you said, it really strikes to the heart of empty consumerism. The, the mom is always distracted because she's just hearing these ads every day. It, it's a great story. And Griffith herself led an interesting life. In addition to her two genre stories, she also wrote fiction and humor essays for The Atlantic, Reader's Digest, some other magazines. She was an actress, a librarian, wow. a ship fitter. Wow. Um, and she was a pilot in the Wasps during Whoa. World War II. Yeah, no. So the Wasps, they were a civilian women pilots organization. Technically, they were federal civil service employees. They were women that who were they were trained as pilots. So what they did, what these women did was they tested aircraft. They they ferried, they flew aircraft from place to place just to get it from point A to point B. And they trained other pilots thus freeing male pilots for combat roles in World War II. So this huh. is really cool. This woman is really cool. And here Pamela Sargent is just like, eh, it's just some woman's story it's about boring like, a housewife. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Right. So Yeah. So I feel like this example really shows just how blinded by ideology yeah. certain feminist writers could, could be back in the 70s. I, I don't want to come down too hard on Pamela Sargent because, you know, obviously the anthologies that she edited are, are, are important works. And she's also an author in her own right. I have a book of hers that I haven't gotten around to reading called The Shore of Women, which seems pretty interesting. But so this is just another way that women get written out of the history, right? It's like, uh, it, you know, it feels kind housewife of like a stuff. damned if you do and damned if you don't thing. Like if you right. write about these sort of real world, sort of realistic-ish stories then it's like oh you're a boring housewife but then if you write escapist stuff then it's like oh you're just writing silly stuff you're just feeling ridiculous space opera so whichever direction you go you're doing it wrong right yeah chris rush in in, in her intro she makes the point that women tend to write a lot of women write popular fiction but of course popular fiction gets denigrated yeah. as unserious right like oh you know it's not high-minded elite work something that a man would write you know just because right. it's popular so just another way that they there are so many ways that all sorts hey, of people even, get even though so much serious literature of the 1950s was about seething suburban angst you know suburban yeah. dissatisfaction but that's by Dad, male writers so it's okay Davin makes an interesting point that if you look at women's science fiction of the 50s, not all of it, but there's a an identifiable subset of it where you can kind of speak of it as a, as a women's literature reacting to the state of the, the 1950s. And it's different from what men write. Yeah. So if, if you look at men's science fiction of the 50s that was reacting to the consumerist cookie cutter 50s vibe that you were talking about earlier, a lot of the times what men write is something along the lines of one man rebelling alone against the system right, right? but women's fiction of that time davin said that women didn't write stories like this by and large generally you could look at the 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 tone or the classification of their writing and the way that they wrote in reaction to the 50s conformist consumerist hellscape 
their stories are tend to be about the quest for community, the attempt oh. to communicate with other people, even communicating with aliens. Now, of course, not everybody wrote this way, but enough right. people did that you can speak of a, a distinct female science fiction point of view that's different from the male science fiction point of view. And a lot of a lot of this women's fiction has been, there have been efforts to to rediscover it, especially lately, but a lot of it's been forgotten and uh, it is a, yeah. uh, it's a real shame. Yeah. Like I, I checked out a little bit of this stuff and I, I find it that it actually holds up really well in a really compelling way. I know Kit Reed might be more early sixties than fifties, but she wrote very domestic women's science fiction. And there's this one short story of hers that I absolutely love called A New You. Yeah, I, and I had it, not read that. Until you gave it to me. It's so good. It's about yeah. this woman who orders a newer, more glamorous and thin version of herself, but she forgets to get rid of the old hers and it's just following her around, driving her crazy. And it's really <laughs> funny and really, really like sharp and and really insightful and stuff. And I absolutely love the story. Yeah, it it was a great one. I it was very funny too the oh, the satire really was funny. really biting it's it is biting it's mean it is a mean catty story in the best way though it's so good yeah she she really she really captured i guess you could say uh self-hatred women's self-hatred hate hatred of of one's own body it, oh, it's a yeah. very good story but, yeah. but also how it's i guess you could say ultimately hollow because the 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 hunky version of right of her husband both versions of her husband prefer her old schlubby self. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> it's really it's good. A, yeah. Kit, Kit Reed, uh, she's one of the authors that I, 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 I didn't have time to, to go more in depth. And I, I wish I did. She had a, a very long and, and interesting career. I think she, she only died about five years ago. But she wrote a, a lot of, of stuff and a lot of, of different things. One of those writers that you couldn't pigeonhole. I'm noticing from your notes, she had a massive career for decades. So there's not one, there's not one era that you could slot her into. But when you say domestic women's sci-fi, that's where my brain goes to a new you, which is a really, really fun story. And I highly recommend it. I absolutely love it. All right. So some more, oh God, we, some more women of, or more diverse and, and varied authors of the forties and fifties. Frank M. Robinson. Frank M. Robinson. Yes, he was gay, you say? Yes, he yes. was gay. He might have been... He started writing before David Gerald, so maybe he was one of the first out gay men. I, I think he was out. His first story was The Maze in Astounding, 1950. He was a, a science fiction and a techno-thriller writer. Mm -hmm. First solo novel was The Power in 1956, mm. about a man who discovers a co-worker has psy psychic powers, and then his co-workers start getting murdered, and uh, it was turned into a movie mm. in 1967. He wrote a lot of, he co-wrote a lot of like airport thrillers in the 70s, but he solo wrote a major SF novel in 1991 called The Dark Beyond the Stars. It's a generation ship novel. He was drafted in World War II and uh, also served in the Navy during the Korean War. For a number of years, he worked for various men's magazines, including Playboy, from 1969 <clears throat> until <clears throat> 1973. In addition to his genre life, he was also a gay rights activist. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah, part of why... Uh, 
picked him to talk about. He moved to San Francisco in the 70s, and he was a friend of Harvey Milk. That's and, cool. Uh, he, yeah, the first... Uh, Openly gay, openly San gay politician. Yep. Yeah, he, he was on the council, right? Or wasn't he the mayor? Oh, was he the mayor? Was he? Well, the he, mayor? he, he I, I don't, I don't I, I should, now. I should know this. I really should know this. I'm looking this up right now. Well, anyway, um, he was the first openly gay man to be elected to public office in California as a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Okay, so he wasn't the the mayor, I guess. Cool. Okay. Well, so in, in addition to being Harvey Milk's friend, Robinson was also his speechwriter, and he was also the co-executor of, of Milk's will after, mm. after he was murdered. Robinson also wrote an autobi autobiography that was published posthumously in 2017 called Not So Good a Gay Man. Tor published that, uh, mm. if anybody's interested in reading it. So yeah, popular writer, airport thrillers. He, one of his things got adapted into the towering inferno uh from oh, wow. the 70s yeah. yeah that was a wildly popular trash movie back then <laughs> right yeah so he so he he was a a fairly popular writer at the time besides his yeah. novels he also wrote a fair amount of short stories in the yeah. in the 1950s now did his fiction ha include openly gay characters or what is, is it all vibes is it all uh know? I don't know. I haven't read any of his work. I oh, no. I don't think it is. In terms of people who write openly gay characters, I feel like, like you said, it's probably mostly vibes and, and longing uh, in, right. in retrospect. I didn't come across much of that in my research until writers of, let's say, like the 1980s. Mm. Um, yeah. But it, you know, it, it does start happening after after yeah. a while. Yeah. Now, uh, an I, another person you put on the list, Miriam Allen, Allen DeFord. Yes. Uh, she, she sounds another, amazing. Yeah. I, I picked her. I figured you would like her. So she I sounds fucking rad as shit. So she started publishing science fiction in 1950. She, I'm pretty sure she debuted in FNSF. Nice. Um, but she had this whole career before that, also as a, a, a mystery writer. So she was born in 1888 and died in 1975. Yes, a science fiction debut in the second issue of FNSF. She also nice. uh, had a story in Dangerous Visions. Nice. Um, most of her work appeared in FNSF. She wrote almost 80 stories between 1950 and 1970. So in addition to her science fiction career, she wrote for various leftist magazines in the 1920s and was active in the suffrage movement before the passage of suffrage in 1919. She campaigned for and distributed birth control to women. Hell yeah. Uh, she was a newspaper writer. Like I said, she was a mystery writer of note. She wrote a nonfiction book about Bonnie and Clyde and was the San Francisco correspondent for the Socialist Federated Press from 1921 to 1956. She was, uh, from her, her bio in, in Partners in Wonder, I um, quoted this. She was quoted as saying in 1942, quote, I was born a feminist and have been a free thinker since I was 13, end quote. She was married and divorced and then married again. She was jailed for her suffrage activities. She married a guy named Maynard Shipley, who was the founder and president of the organization 
it was called the Science League of America. They provided most of the expert witnesses for the defense in the the Scopes Monkey Trial. You know about about um, yeah yeah about teaching the theory of evolution in school. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. She was also a member of the Socialist Party from 1919 to 1922, but she left because said to Ford, they were going too far to the right. They were practically <laughs> a branch, practically Hell a branch yeah. of the Democratic Party. Oh I've always God. been. I've always her. been for. I know it's it's pretty great. I love um, her so much. She also covered the Sacco and Vanzetti trial and was friends with Jack London. She was uh, an editor of the Federal Writers Project for the mm. California WPA during oh. the Depression, but she got fired from that job because she spent too much time covering the deportation hearing of radical longshoreman union leader Harry Bridges. So oh. just seems like a pretty cool woman. She sounds fucking awesome. What did She's she got... write in terms of sci-fi? I mean... I I don't know. I haven't I read know. any of her work. Her, I just, her I just extraordinary her life might have overshadowed her, her fiction uh, output a little bit. But she does. She did publish two collections. They're called. The second one is called Xenogenesis, and the the first one's called Elsewhere, Elsewhen, Elsehow. And uh, she also wrote a memoir. It was contained in a larger work. That work is called from parlor to prison five american suffragists talk about their lives edited by sherna gluck so i was just i was reading about her in the partners in wonder book and uh, i said to myself like raquel's gonna dig yes i will alan deford i will she is <laughs> me i love her she's amazing <laughs> also interestingly she went on record as saying that she didn't she believed she didn't seem to think that she really faced any gender discrimination in the science fiction field. Um, huh. Yeah, she believed that she was in one of the few fields, science fiction writing. She was quoted as saying, where there is no sexual discrimination, I have never heard an editor say, for instance, that he didn't want a story because it was by a woman. Huh. I, I you know, there, it's tough, right? Because there is, there was discrimination in the field. Yeah. One of the one of the funny things that Davin really hammers home in in his book Partners in Wonder is that a lot of the uh, myths about no women in science fiction it's not just Isaac Asimov but a lot of it seems to stem from Isaac Asimov. Um, he had it seems like he had big problems with women. Yeah, he um, was a notorious groper at conventions or something. Just like a yes, huge creep. Yes, he was. Um, he, he did. It, he, from he what I've read of his work, he was not great at writing woman characters. I uh, haven't read any of him. My wife read all of his uh, foundation books and said that she liked him. You know, I'm not saying that he, he shouldn't be read. Yeah, but, yeah I'm not uh, saying yeah, he, he definitely never had, read his books ever again. He's canceled he forever. He definitely had problems with, with but when you read him. it you're like oh this is this guy's this guy doesn't like ladies very much this is this doesn't feel very good <laughs> yeah what did he do okay so at some point okay yeah so he would basically whenever anybody asked him about it he'd say like oh no there were no women and the few that were they had to publish under male names just terrible for them, right? No women. And it's more like there I were think no women because they were hiding there. from him so that he wouldn't yeah. grab their asses. That's why. 
And like the problem is, is that Asimov, he wasn't there from the beginning. I mean, he was right. born in 1920, but like he he was reading early science fiction as a kid and he was an, an early author and he was he was very he was mainstream famous. He, he went on The Tonight Show. Yeah, he was huge. More than once. Yeah. He had big issues with women and with there being romance in science fiction stories. Oh, come on. In um, when he would have been about like 18 or 19 he wrote a series of quote anti-mush letters to john campbell at astounding yeah no that's what he called them and like he wrote them to the letter column so they got published in the magazine they were pretty emotional and vitriolic on the subject of of there shouldn't be any mush in science fiction he claimed that science fiction was for men in oh these my letters God. But but Davin points out that in this opinion, he was he was pretty much alone. And um, a lot of other yeah. fans, men and women, apparently letters poured in from yeah, both like, male and nerd. female readers. Yeah, oh, basically Isaac. saying that no, nobody was with him at that time. <laughs> yeah, that's then, right. And then Davin went on to say, um, went on to say that Asimov wrote back to Campbell saying like, what? Nobody agreed with me. Not even the men. He, he apparently literally wrote then the like, oh, well, all those male readers who criticized him must be henpecked husbands. Oh, my God. He's just calling him cucks. Yeah. So uh, he, he had issues. Oh, but like, God. You know, he sucks. Somebody pers- it's funny. Oh, my God. Everyone said, no, we want mush. We want love. We want we want people to make out in our stories. OK, we like that. Some of it is is personal bias, and some of it is just people misremembering things decades later. Yeah, um, like there was this. Davin also quoted um, Fred Pohl, a very big figure in the field, author, editor, agent. He was a big deal and a, and a good writer. But he quoted him as saying that, like, yeah, there weren't any uh, women science fiction writers before, like. <laughs> 1950 or 1948 or something like that right but that's really funny because fred pole was married to three early women science fiction writers his first wife fuck dude (laughs) i know right his first wife was his is that why they got divorced because he kept erasing them i i couldn't tell you i don't know but his first wife was doris baumgart they were both members of the Futurians. This, I don't think I have time to go into it, but it was a big, it was a, it was a science fiction sort of fan club, sort of like tight knit group of people who were all science fiction fans, and a bunch of them went on to become famous science fiction writers and science fiction editors in the field. Fred Pohl, Asimov, Damon Knight, Judy Merrill, and others. But so Doris Baumgart. Wrote a couple of stories. She was his first wife. His second wife also wrote some stories. His third wife was noted science fiction writer and editor Judith Merrill, whose first short story, Only a Mother in Astounding, it's it's a, a famous story. It came out in 1948. So it's it's just it's just funny that he would say that, since it's you'd you'd think he would know better. Yeah, what a jerk. <laughs> yeah. But it's just it's just it's it's very easy to believe. I guess so. That's so wild to me. Like you, there were any si- lady science fiction. You're you're married to one of them right now. You're what the fuck, dude? I don't know. Okay, 
Now, in your notes, you note that uh, Weird Tales had a female editor during this era? Yes. The third editor of Weird Tales, Dorothy McElwraith. She was the editor after the famous Farnsworth Wright, uh, who, like, he, he was the editor of the Weird Tales that everybody thinks about when they think of Weird Tales. Robert E. Howard, Conan the Barbarian, H.P. Lovecraft, and everything that he was doing. That was, that was Farnsworth Wright. So Dorothy McElwraith became the editor of Weird Tales in 1940, and she remained the editor for the rest of Weird Tales' original run until the magazine folded in 1954. So she was the editor for 14 years for 87 issues. She was Canadian. And uh, she gets overlooked a bit because she does come after this famous period. By 1940, Weird Tales' place in the field had slipped a lot. The pulp era was starting to wane. And just in general, I think weird fiction and horror was seen as kind of quaint. In the 1940s, there's all these big scientific advances. Right. You know, you're living in like a rocket age world. You want rocket age stuff, not like, oh boy, a spooky ghost and so, whatever. We don't care about. Yeah, this is the atomic age that people weren't scared <laughs> of vampires anymore. No one gave a shit. Right. The other problem is that so what happened was that Weird Tales got sold in 1939, and the editorial offices moved from Chicago to New York. And um, the editor, Farnsworth Wright, he made the move, but he got fired. And also, um, no. he was in bad health. He had Parkinson's. So actually, he, he, he died shortly thereafter. And a few years prior to this, both H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard had died. And they were like their two biggest writers and their third biggest writer Clark Ashton Smith had kind of stopped writing by 1940 so it was just it was a tough period for the magazine and the new publisher was a cheapskate so um weird tales had the the lowest rates in the field of, uh. Uh, of just a penny a word uh. so they had a lot of problems but McElwraith was a was a good editor not only was she she was simultaneously editing two magazines Weird Tales and then Short Stories was the other magazine. I guess it was just a a non-genre magazine. So she sort of gets forgotten for the most part. Not always. Daryl Schweitzer wrote highly of her. I think in, um, in Dorothy McElwraith's case, if you want to talk about ways that um, females in the science fiction field can get overlooked or forgotten, she's an interesting case. If you think about like women, if if women don't, or not even just women, just any people, if they don't interact socially very much with the rest of the field, they tend to get forgotten, right? Because it's science fiction's even though today it's like it's a very huge field. Back then it was very small, so it's like everybody knows everybody. Mm. Everybody's very chummy, right? So you know, if you're not like just hanging out with the in crowd, it's like you're not my friend, right? Yeah. Um, and also, if you don't leave behind very much correspondence, or if you don't write an autobiography for future historians to delve into, that can hinder your chances of getting remembered. And Dorothy McElwraith didn't leave behind much correspondence or autobiography. And like I was saying about weird tales being in this declining period, um, she just caught a lot of bad feelings uh, mm. from the rest of the field. 
everything that I, a lot of the stuff that I read about her says, oh, she was a competent editor, but she just lacked that certain sort of special something that made weird tales, weird tales, right? Uh... So, you know, like, uh, I think a lot of, from my reading, it seems that what a lot of it is, is that a whole lot of the weird fiction crowd at that time really loved Farnsworth Wright because that was the best era of weird tales. Well, that 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 was like the capital W weird tales era of weird tales. And after it was over, they took it out on McElwraith, um, oh, you know, because no. of the, the the bad pay rates and just different stories. She also apparently didn't engage very personally with readers and and, and writers to the same extent that Farnsworth hmm. Wright had. So people's remembrances of her are generally fewer and less personal. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. And like I said, she didn't leave behind extensive memoirs. So there's just less there for people nowadays to talk about. Here, let me let me quote from from Mike Ashley. He wrote a series of very interesting. It's like a four or five volume history of the magazine field in the 20th century. I think he's still writing it. As far as I know, it's these are the only kind of books on the subject. But anyway, so quote, he, he called her quote, competent editor but lacked the eccentricity that Wright had brought to the magazine right um also in certain sources i've i was reading they attribute a lot of her work to her assistant lamont buchanan a man who was already there at the time and had been working there and had like more of an affinity for weird what weird fiction was so you know like we've kind of seen that song and dance before right like Oh, a woman wasn't trying. Oh, but but really, it was like a man behind the string, behind yeah. the scenes, pulling the strings. So, I don't know. I I think that she does seem to have um, borne some some discrimination after the fact. She doesn't even have her own entry in the science fiction encyclopedia uh, online. She's just mentioned in passing in the the weird tales entry. Wow. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but it it's not uniform like i said daryl schweitzer wrote highly of her and other people both of the weird tales anthologies that i own um in their introductions they they do go out of their way to say that no mackleraith was a good editor people say things about her but it's not true she did bring in some new writers to to weird tales people who hadn't published there before people like ray bradbury fritz Leiber, frederick brown hmm. Some of these people are not as well known today, but they were very well known then. Yeah, they were um, back then. They were a big. They deal. were back then. Yeah. Okay. Someone you also thought was worth mentioning, Betty Ballantine or Ballantine. Ballantine. Yeah. Ballantine. I, I I thought it was important to talk about her. I mean, I I don't think you could say that she's obscure. Right. But, like the problem is, I I had trouble deciding. I had trouble deciding in 2022 who is well known anymore and who's forgotten, right? Right. There's a reason it's... we're not talking too much about C.L. Moore because she's still really well remembered. Yes. You know? although and we're not going to also... talk about Ursula Le Guin because you know who everyone knows who Ursula Le Guin is. We're trying to like right. talk about people who weren't quite as well appreciated today. Although I, I did want to talk about I I didn't have time to go in depth on C.L. Moore or Lee Brackett. Yeah. Which is too bad because they were the two most popular and important women writers of the 
the 30s and 40s, maybe even into the 50s for, for Lee Brackett's case. But anyway, so Betty Ballantyne is just incredibly important, not just for science fiction book publishing, but for book publishing in general, and really, you could say American society. So Ballantyne books, it was her and her husband, Ian. They shared duties, but I guess you could broadly say that her husband, Ian, acted more as the publisher, and she acted more as an editor. Just in terms of American society, she published The Population Bomb by oh, wow. uh, Paul Ehrlich in 1968. Yeah. Yeah, that was Huge. an incredibly important uh, sociology, or would you call it book, or a nonfiction book that made everybody yeah, yeah, sociology afraid of overpopulation. Right, yeah. Hugely um, influential book. Yeah, it, I mean, it was on The Tonight Show, and it... it it also impacted science fiction because like for decades afterward, hey. you see all these books about like, there's too many people. Soylent overpopulation is the curse of population ruining the world. And yeah, um, yeah. there's tons or, or um, Logan's run too. Like they can right. only sustain so many people. So when you turn 30, you're instantly killed. Yeah. So like she, so she's a big deal for just American history. So she lived to be 99. She was born in 1919. Got married when she was, yeah, she was 18 when she married Ian Ballantyne and they like left that week. She, she's British. So they left that week for America. In 1939, they landed in America and they basically started the paperback revolution in America. Wow. Because they, they established Penguin Books in America. They were like the American division of what was then the British company Penguin Books. There had been paperbacks before like in the 19th century here and there but uh after there were like a bunch of economic busts in the 1890s so um paperbacks disappeared until the 1930s uh they also started bantam books in 1945 after they parted ways with penguin and then in 1952 ian got himself fired so he and betty started ballantine books that same year so they reinvigorated reinvigorated the paperback market with Penguin and founded two of the greatest paperback publishing houses of the 20th century. And she was a, a big supporter of science fiction. She basically, uh, Ballantine Books, basically, they sort of brought science fiction to the book market. They started publishing original science fiction in, in 1953. And um, the thing is, like, there really wasn't a book market for science fiction huh. before this time. It was just, it was all in the magazines, of which there were dozens of them, right? If you wanted science fiction, you read it in the magazines. And, um, and the Ballantines did a lot to make science fiction novels in books not just serialized in magazines they launched she launched the ballantine adult fantasy series in the late 60s which reprinted a lot of work from hp lovecraft and clark ashton smith lord dunsany she re she's the reason that in in a sort of roundabout way she's the reason that lord of the rings is so popular in in america wow um, yeah because what it is is that Houghton Mifflin was publishing the hardcover, you know, ever since the book came out in the right. 50s, but there was no paperback version until Ace Books started publishing a pirated version in the 60s. <laughs> I read this in a, an interesting book called The Time of Their Lives by Al Silverman. It's it's about the, the American book publishing business in, in the, the middle of the 20th century. Betty Ballantyne's her secretary or her switchboard operator basically came to her with a big 
hardcover edition of The Hobbit and said, hey, I think you'd really like this. And she did. And so she went to Haunton Mifflin and said, hey, why don't we contract with you so that we'll put out the the paperback edition of the book? Because that's that's what happened back in those days. Hardback publishers and paperback publishers were separate companies. Oh, weird. Yeah, it's not all in like contained in one house like it has been for a long time. Like so the yeah, Ballantine, they only did paperbacks. And for example, Hot and Mifflin back in those days only did hardcovers. So like a paperback hat like a hardcover house would publish the hardcover and then they would sell the paperback rights to a completely different company. And that's that's how it worked back in those days. So she went to Hot and Mifflin. And said, hey, why don't we contract with you like to publish the paperback edition? And they didn't want to do it because they didn't want a competing version. But then a few years later, Ace Books started publishing. They didn't think it was a pirated version because they said that because of some loophole in copyright law, because like the book is imported, it doesn't count as being copyrighted, so we can do this. And then Houghton Mifflin freaked out because it was very popular. Of course. They like. Yeah, so they ran back to to Betty Ballantyne. They're like, no, 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 please, we'll we'll do it. You you do the authorized edition. So so Betty Ballantyne published the the authorized like the first authorized paperback version of Lord of the Rings, and it had like a big notice on the back saying this is the authorized version. If you get any other kind of version, it's it's pirated. It had a message from I, th- I think it had a message from J.R.R. Tolkien on it saying, please buy this version of the book or else I don't receive any royalties. <laughs> yeah, so very big in the field that the both she and her husband got a lot of awards. You know, so a lot she's of why we awards. got this explosion of like kind of fun adventure, pulp, sci-fi fantasy novels. Yeah, all over uh, the a, lo- a lot of it. Yeah. A lot of it is because of Betty Ballantyne because she's she's what made science fiction in book form and she was a big uh champion of it she edited robert silverberg that's um, how we ended up with that series of books about giant crabs attacking england yeah Um, that she is why we have paperback (laughs) paradise that rocks it really does so ballantine book like they paid for Anne mccaffrey to fly out to the the world con where she won best novella for wire search which she later turned into to, to Dragonflight, the first of her, her Pern novels. They published The Lord of the Rings. They published the Gormenghast books. They published The Last Unicorn. Uh, they also published Silent Spring. Um, so just oh, like, wow. Yeah. So she's just, I, I, I thought it was just, worth bringing yeah, her up. So Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, for, for those who aren't familiar with it, an incredibly important nonfiction book about pollution, specifically about pollution in the water. And she... This book really like busted the lid open on just how much we were fucking up our own environment by by putting shit in the air and water we shouldn't have been putting there. It was a huge boost for the environmental movement. Incredibly important book. Yeah, so like I I don't I don't know if you could call her obscure, but she's she's such an important yeah. person. I, I I just uh, I felt like she, it, it was worth talking about her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that there has been a little bit of a parade of white women so far. Can, do you have any yeah. um, um, examples of, of maybe <clears throat> by POC writers, editors in this golden age, in this era? Yes, well, in the, from the 50s, do I? Let me see. Somebody who's not a white woman. 
Yeah. Uh, I I gotta tell you, it's it's a lot of white women in the. It 50s. is a lot of white women. Damn. Um, <laughs> no. Although I, I I I will um point out there are um two two books and and a web article series. I, I didn't have time to to delve into everything quite so deeply, but so if, if you're looking for specifically black science fiction, I would point anybody to Cherie Renee Thomas's two Dark Matter anthologies. It's Dark Matter, and then the second one is called Dark Matter Reading the Bones, where she collects a lot of um, both science fiction from contemporary black writers, or at least Mm. writers who were contemporary around the year 2000 and then the year 2005. Um, But it also has older stuff, stuff that was published outside of the uh of the genre itself but that can still be considered today okay. uh science fiction including a a really affecting story by w e b dubois or uh, or dubois i i don't oh, know wow. how he pronounced wow, it um, really it, it's called the comet it's about you're, you're in new york a comet comes by somehow poisons everybody it, it was written in 1920 but it just so happens that like the uh the only two people who are left are the main character this black man who happened to survive it and he finds a a white woman like in the i guess you could say the not the rubble but you know everybody in manhattan is dead it, it's interesting because it's it's not very long but it goes through them the racial tension of oh gosh can we even do this? It's we're the only two people left. W- what does it matter? And uh, it's a really heartbreaking story because from the, the 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 point of view of the of the the black main character, it's it's like on the one hand this horrible thing has happened, but on the other hand, wow, I'm like free of all the racism of my era. Like I I can just sort of be a person, and I've, I I don't know if I should spoil it or not. I can if you want to. I mean, it's a hundred years old. The story. I think we can. That's true. It. It, it is a hundred years old. So it then the woman's father and fiance burst into the room. What? Um, turn, it turns out that only everybody in Manhattan died. Everybody else is okay. Oh. Um, which I, I mean, like it. It doesn't come off as as cheesy in in the story. In the in the story, really, it's heartbreaking because for a moment you feel like like wow, I'm I'm am free. What is my life going to be now? And then it it all just comes crashing back down. It's like no, it's it's going to be exactly the way that it was, and it's uh, it's a good story. But so so those two books those two books are good. And then Nisi Shawl, I can send you the bookmarks. She wrote a a short article on her web page kind of breaking down black speculative fiction uh, in the 20th century, where she talks about people like, I think I mentioned Charles W. Chestnut and um, George, George Schuyler was a, a black, a black satirist in the middle of the 20th century who wrote several things. One of them is a book called Black No More. It's a satire. It's about these two scientists come up with a way to turn black people into white people. Mm. So like they start doing that and for I I only read about it. I, I have it here, but I haven't I haven't read it yet. So black people start doing this because it's like, oh, thank God, no more racism for me. But it starts freaking out the rest of society because now the white people don't know, like, oh, yeah. God, who's white and who's black anymore? Um, like I said, it, it, it's it's an interesting satire from what I read about it. So that's definitely a science fictional premise. But that just gets into 
back to what I, what we were saying earlier about like classification errors, how you can look at something, you can look at a work and like it's clearly science fiction, but just for some reason it's just not seen that way. But so she also, Nisi Shaw also did a long running, I think there might be like 42 entries in it, series of articles on Tor.com. It's called A History of Black Speculative Fiction, where in each article she goes into a different writer or a different work. A few of these people I, I researched to talk about, but they don't come up until later. Samuel Delaney is the, the first, is the first black man to write science fiction within the field. Yeah, like, and he was a the, huge the first... deal. He's yeah. kind of not coming in until until the 60s or something, though. Right. He didn't yeah. publish his first novel until 1962. Yeah. So um, so before then, there's nobody within the field that, that I know of to talk about. I mean, maybe somebody was just writing under a, a fake name for a lot of people. We don't know anything about them except their names. But, but yeah, as far as like, known black people in the genre sam delaney is the the first one 1962 right okay so i think maybe we should bring it to a close now because we've been talking for well over two hours i am getting um, a little hoarse i yeah, still feel it like is, it i haven't time <laughs> i haven't said anything that i really wanted to to talk about i feel like there's, oh there's yeah just, there's so much there's a lot. So next time we're, we're going to carry on this discussion in a future installment where we get into the 1960s and 70s and then up through the 80s and 90s. And and unfortunately, in the 60s and 70s, you definitely do see much more of an expansion of racial diversity and, and a lot more openness about queerness and fiction, too, which is yeah. extremely cool. But for for our time, it's a lot of white women. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a, a lot, lot of white, white women, women, unfortunately. Although I, I will say, it's a that Becky parade. One, I'm sorry. One one last thing from the the Davin book. He did point out that in in the 50s, people, white people, I, I guess they were white. People were writing into like magazines, like Astounding and, and various magazines, like asking the editors, like, "Hey, why don't you run more stories? Like, why don't you run black stories with black protagonists?" We would like it if you would uh, if you would write that. Oh wow! And um, yeah, no. So it it th th these things are there. One other thing that I learned from the the partners in Wonder Book is that uh, there is there there was a black readership in science fiction in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. Um, but they didn't really participate in in fandom. I suppose you could chalk that up to societal racism at 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 the time. Yeah. I don't know too much about it. But in uh, I I don't have the note in front of me but i did make note of it in a in in one of his letters i guess it must have been published after his, his death but john w campbell the editor of astounding analog yeah. in like the mid 50s he wrote a uh, a letter to forrest j ackerman who was a big time fan and, and historian where he was speaking uh, i guess you could say boasting but that has negative connotations he was speaking pridefully of of the black readership of his of his magazine that he had a, a pretty right. sizable uh, readership and he was proud of it i think apparently he he could uh, he could see sales figures of of the magazine and he could see oh well there's a lot of sales in this neighborhood of this city that's a black neighborhood there must be a lot of, of black people reading my magazine weird uh weird guy john campbell weird yeah guy big time racist and, and sexist big so time fucking seem. piece of shit unfortunately 
Yeah, uh, but good editor though. Yeah, good editor and was uh was was proud of the minority readership of his magazine. He did publish women though. Um that's He did do that. I'll give him that. Yes. There's just so much to talk about. I guess that's like yeah. the big takeaway from why this episode is so long and I, and I, I do apologize for that and why we're going <laughs> to do a part two. Yeah, there's you know. got, we, this is going to be two parts. There's no way we, we have not even gotten to the 60s yet. Like, I guess that's that's really the big takeaway from all of this. People like to casually talk about science fiction being undiverse, being just straight white man and nothing else. And it's only now recently that, you know, we're finally yeah, only getting post diversity. 2000, post 9-11, really. Right. Yeah. Or, or even sooner. And that is so untrue. Old science fiction was so diverse. I mean, probably not to like today's standards, but it was so diverse. And there were so many other writers who weren't cisgendered, straight white men that like there's no way that you could fit all of it into one. You could yeah. create your own podcast just to talk about all these people. There were so yeah. many people. Yeah. And I like old SF by straight white dudes. And, I, and people just use the, oh, it's all just straight white men excuse to like write off like 80 years worth of fiction. Yeah. And I feel like people do that because like if they admitted the truth that it was diverse, you know, that there is there is old stuff that's by 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 diverse writers then they would have to admit that oh well maybe this whole period isn't so bad maybe there is stuff from 50 60 years ago that's worth reading maybe some of it is in fact by yeah. old straight white dudes yeah but so yeah there's just there's a lot out there yeah so in a in upcoming installment of this we will take a look at the emergence of the new wave and cyberpunk We'll talk about the 1960s through the 1990s, and fortunately in the 60s and 70s, you see a big, big, big explosion of openly queer writers writing very queer fiction and much, much more racial diversity, at least in the English-speaking sci-fi scene. So look forward to that. But for now, let us sign off, because this this has... This is a big, beefy episode so far. Before we go, thanks for coming on the show. And where can our listeners find and support your work if there's anything you want to plug? Oh, who, me? Um, yes, you. Not really. Uh, I I used to work for FNSF. I, I haven't had anything to do with it for more than two years now, but it is uh, still near and dear to my heart. Uh, if anybody cares to read it or subscribe to it to keep it going. Also, well, I, if anybody wants to hear me ramble on about random science fiction anecdotes and um, the subject of originality, I, I guess I, I was on. You were this show on a previous episode, al almost three years ago, and we, oh we did God. a book club episode too about um, alien virus love disaster stories by Abby yeah. Mayotis. That's it. I, I don't I don't do or, or have anything else. Okay, good. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on and thank you all for listening. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittystasis.com. 
you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. KittySneezes.com in color.